You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I think the food industry naturally has a dark side to it because it is a world of excesses, almost like a hedonistic world, right? And there's something so decadent about spending your life in the pursuit of sensual pleasure. That was Stephanie Dandler, author of the novel Sweet Bitter. I'll be speaking with her later in the show. Dandler's fictional book is about the front of the house, the hosts and waitstaff, not the more heralded back of the house, the chefs, the cooks, and even the dishwashers. But first, it's time to check in with our baker, Erica Bruce at Milk Street, who's going to give us a new recipe for the perfect pie crust. Erica, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Chris. So you know, because we've worked together a long time, that for 35 years I've had this insane obsession with pie pastry because it's, you know, how much water do you add? It's too wet, it's too dry, it doesn't roll out. You have to cut the butter into pea-sized pieces, whatever that means, how big right. are the peas. Uh, and, and then it's, it's, as I said, hard to roll out. You get it in the pan or the tart shell, and it starts to shrink when you pre-bake it. So it has, has all these problems. And sometimes also it's tough by the time you end up with right. all this process. So. I wanted a pie pastry that's, uh, there, there's no guesswork about how much mm-hmm. water to add or how to do the butter. It's easy to roll out, does not shrink, or at least very much, when you pre-bake it. Right. And that's all I want. That's so, it. That's Easy. It. Streamlined yeah. recipe. No problem. No, actually, I found that by looking at something called Japanese milk bread. Have you ever heard of that? Chris? I have heard of it. Okay. It's a very tender, moist, pillowy, soft loaf of bread. And the way that they get this bread to be the way it is, they use a method called the Tangzong method. And they make a paste out of flour and boiling hot water. And they mix that together and they add that to the dough along with the other ingredients, the rest of the flour and the rest of the water. What that does is the starch in the flour traps all that water and it holds it in, retains it while the bread bakes. It also keeps some of the water from interacting and forming gluten in the flour so that it comes out very tender. And I thought, this is a great technique. How can I translate this into pie dough? And what I found is that cornstarch worked like magic. It's, it has much more thickening power than flour because it's a pure starch, and it absorbs much more of the water. And I found that I could add all of the water in my pie dough with the cornstarch, mix it together, create this gel, and that solved that problem of the guesswork of trying to figure out how much water you're going to add to your dough. So you, so you have a gel which looks like, you know, like silly putty. You just add that to the flour? And, you add and that to what? the flour. Yeah, that's another trick that we learned is that you could add, you sort of mix your ingredients backwards. Instead of cutting your butter into your flour into the quote-unquote pea-sized pieces, whatever that is, right, uh, you can add your gel to the flour, you combine it completely, and then you add, you dump in your, all your butter. And we also added an extra ingredient for extra insurance that the dough would be tender, and that's sour cream. And the reason we chose sour cream is because it's a dairy product, and as a dairy product, it contains a peptide that interferes with the formation of gluten, so that makes a tender dough. And also, it's you know, has a large amount of fat, which is always a good thing. So all the ingredients are pre-measured. You cut everything in fully, right? I mean, there's, there's no piece-sized pieces. Yeah. You cut you everything in fully. You just add the butter and the sour cream, and you process it until the dough completely comes together, so you don't have to guess... I don't know how big are your pieces or how far have you gone. You just 
bring it all together in the food processor. So you let it rest, I assume, you in the refrigerator, yeah. which one always does. So uh, explain the texture to me. Wh is, how is it different than pie dough? Yeah, once it's sat for about an hour in the refrigerator, it's like smooth and um, as soft as, as Play-Doh. It really does feel like Play-Doh when you're rolling it out. And you, it's completely smooth, so you don't get any of those jagged, broken edges. You don't, it's not sticky or wet because all that water is being trapped up in the uh, cornstarch gel. So you start with a gelatin, you know, microwave, water, cornstarch, make a gelatin, cut that into flour, then add your butter, 10 tablespoons, a little sour cream, salt. It all gets fully mixed in, like they would in Europe. They don't, they don't have big right, pieces of right. butter. Fully mixed in, let it rest, and it rolls out like a charm, easy to do, and then it doesn't shrink when pre-baked. And, you know, with Thanksgiving as well, there's a lot of pre-baking of, let's right, say, pumpkin right. or, or pecan pie shells. And very often they pre-bake, you don't have enough room for the filling. So this solves all your problems. I can go to sleep tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, welcome to Milk Street. Ready to take calls? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line today? Hi, this is Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Where are you calling from? Toledo, Ohio. Okay. And you have a question for us. Here's my question. My mother lives with us now, and we all like a good steak every now and then. Unfortunately, all of us like it done at a different level of doneness. My mother likes it rare, I like it medium rare, and my husband likes it well done. I can never seem to coordinate very well how to get it all to come out at the same time. Either everything ends up too rare or ends up too overdone. And I'm just wondering, can you give me some kind of an idea how to coordinate the cooking so that we can all be served at the same time and everybody's happy? I have a brilliant, <laughs> at least I think it is, technique. You put the steaks on a rack on a pan in a 250 oven to start okay. and make sure they're patted dry. I should leave them out at room temperature, salted for a while, but you don't have to do that. In general, I bring them up to about 90 degrees internal, 90, 95 degrees, and then I'll finish them very quickly on a grill or on a saute pan, okay? If you okay. wanted to use this method, it's perfect for what you want to do. I'd have some steaks at 90, some at 100, some at 110, and they'll all end up exactly differently the way you want it when you finish cooking two minutes aside in a pan or on a grill. So put the steaks in. The one you want medium rare, pull it out of the oven at 90 degrees internal. If you want medium, 100 degrees, a little bit more, 110. And now they're all pre-cooked up to a certain level and then finish them exactly the same way on the grill or the pan and you're all set to go. And that would be a great way to do it. That's really brilliant. Yeah. Now, but you need a really good meat thermometer for that. The best thermometer is the Thermapen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's made by Thermaworks. It's almost $100. Oh, dear. But <laughs> there are some other ones. Uh, OXO makes one. CDN makes mm -hmm. one. And they're $20, $25. And they're fine. One trick with steak. Use tongs. Pick it up. Insert the thermometer horizontally sideways. 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 And get it okay. into the center of the steak, because otherwise it's a little tricky, but that'll help. I think that's a great idea. That's the really good way to do it. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, you'll also have more tender steaks and more flavorful steaks, because... The, the gentle cooking. You get some enzyme action going in the oven. You know, it's interesting, because that's how I cook big roasts at a really low temperature. You can sear them very briefly ahead of time or sear them at the end. But the point of cooking something at 250 degrees is, let's say you want it to be rare, 
if you cook it to the desired degree, I mean, with a roast, I'd probably do it to 110. It's going to be rare from one side to the other. You know, when you cook a steak on a grill and there's this little tiny pink center and then the rest of it is gray around it, there's very little that's the way you want it. So the white Chris just suggested, well, you'll end it's up more with, even cooking. You'll have a much more even. So every bite will be medium rare or So wait, rare wait, wait, wait. Well You're doing done. a roast to 110? Internal temperature. Really? Yeah. For rare, yeah. Gee. Yeah. I like to... Walk on the wall. No, no, side. but I'm still going to then sear it and oh, let it and oh, let it rest. Oh, oh, and there's okay. carryover okay. cooking okay. time. Yeah, no, no, no. Don't worry. No, no, no. That's blue. Yeah, I know because you you all are talking about 125 to 130 for right. rare. For me, that's medium. Yeah, yeah. Rare is more like 115 to 120. Exactly. Thank you so much. I'm going to try this tonight, and I know it's going to turn out great. And I will credit you for it. And I thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us on Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name's Marianne Dunham from West Endy, Illinois. What can we help you with? Well, I've been cooking for 40 years, and I have a real simple question that I still haven't figured out myself. Um, I use sour cream a lot in my cooking. I prefer to use the light brand of sour cream. When I first use it, I just open up the top. Usually there isn't any moisture that is collected in the container. But after I go back into the refrigerator and I get it back again for a second and a third time, there's always some type of liquid on the top of the sour cream. And my question to you is, do I drain that, which I've been doing for years, or do I stir that back into the product in order to get, you know, a better quality product when I'm using it in my baking? I would recommend stirring it back in. What it is is the way that separates out. And uh, that is a liquid that's, you know, very full of protein and good stuff, you know. So I would just stir it right back in. Well, I'd stir it back in for a different reason. Because once you cut into sour cream, for example, then let it sit, then that liquid is apt to come out. It'll be too dry. In other words, the liquid proportion is going to be wrong. So I would definitely just whisk it back in with a spoon or fork. You know, on that note, it's funny about how many things that you buy at the supermarket that have some sort of liquid in there. You think about tahini or natural peanut butter and yogurt. And I'd say in almost all of those cases, I would stir it back in. You know, when in doubt, stir it back in. My favorite is Jell-O, you know, gels. A lot of things. Do you eat a lot of Jell-O? No, no, but it's 3%. (laughs) It's 97% water. Oh. It's the perfect food because they're just selling water. Essentially, I mean, you mean from a profit point uh, from of view. a profit point. Of so view. is watermelon, by the way, and it's oh. healthier for you. So. <laughs> so, you know, my mother-in-law used to serve Jello yeah. as a first course. It's, there's always room for. It's Jell-O. not a first course. It's like it's a vegetable. Well, the trouble with that is there's a lot of sugar in it. There is. What right. I do is I take fresh orange juice that I've strained and I add gelatin to it. Then I let it set, and I'm, what I often do is hollow out half oranges and put the mixture back That's into them. That's very Victorian of you. I know. And then I'd stabilize them in muffin tins so that they don't tip out, and then I gel them, and then I cut them into wedges, and you've got jello wedges. Oh my you, you can add alcohol to it, too. I, I'm sorry. We really do digress. I don't know what I'm learning all these well, things I, about I've Sarah. I've learned something from this conversation. Yeah. I appreciate the expertise for sure. Our pleasure. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks Take so care. much. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring at one eight five five four 4 bowtie That's one eight five five four 4 bowtie You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is James from Austin, Texas. So how can we help you? I want to eat more vegetables. I like broccoli, cauliflower, carrots. They're pretty good, but not that great. Um, my favorite method for preparing them is olive oil, salt and pepper, and roast them in the oven. 
but it's not that great that I want to do that every night. I guess I sort of lack uh, diversity of techniques. So how can I dress them up and make vegetables more exciting without adding a lot of calories? I'll give you two quick ways. One is to use a big cast iron pan, get it screaming hot, cut the vegetables into fairly bite-sized pieces, little olive oil, a tiny salt, and a little bit of sugar, a tiny bit, and just blacken them on top of the soap, really char them, and then dress them with, you can make a pan sauce or whatever you want. That works great. The other is you can blanch them, and then quarter cup of oil, you can put some scallions and a little bit of grated ginger into the oil at the last second and pour that over the vegetables. And then you can also finish with a diluted soy sauce, chili oil, whatever you want. But the idea of the ginger and the scallion being sizzled with the oil blooms the flavor and it'll dress up any vegetable really quickly. Those would be my two. Do you own a food processor? Yeah, I do. Yay! Have you ever dusted off that box with all the blades in it and used it at all? It's brand new. They're still sharp. Yay! My husband loves beets, and um, beets take too long to cook, and they stain your hands, and my hands, I don't look my age, but my hands make me look like I'm like 90 years old. Right, Chris? Look at those old hands. No, 82. I mean, uh, 42. (laughs) Because, you know, you have to scrub them after you've worked with beets. One day, I was like, wow, how can I cook more beets but not, you know, um, spend hours cooking them? So I dusted off that box with all the blades and took out the grating disc. So you peel the beets, and when you peel them raw... They don't stain your hands the same way. Then you cut them into chunks. You put them in the feed tube. It's a really fun thing to do at the end of the day. And then beets take, oh, about 8 to 10 minutes in a skillet. So you saute them in whatever oil, grapeseed if you're neutral or you want to go Asian, olive oil if you want to go Mediterranean, and you saute them until they're almost tender. And then I usually add just a little bit of balsamic vinegar, which accentuates their natural sweetness and adds a bit of acid and some toasted pine nuts. It's also good for carrots, and you could add lime juice. But, but it, wait, wait, wait. What about the classic French grated carrot salad? And you don't cook it. You just grate it. No, no, but that's raw, and but that's that, great. Yeah. Oh, and uh, hey, if you want to take that down a Middle Eastern route, yeah. you could or add— Moroccan s- carrot salad. Yeah, Moroccan carrot salad. You could add some uh, smoked paprika and cumin and any root vegetable you can grate quickly and then saute in the skillet and then just mm. add different acids, and I like different nuts or seeds— or a spice mix. But the fact of the matter is it makes it so easy you'll just start experimenting. That's actually a good idea. It's It's also, by the way, you can use the slicing disc to slice Brussels sprouts, which also do very nicely. In a raw Uh, salad. Yeah, or quickly sautéed or roasted. I'm raw, you're (laughs) sautéed. Okay. James, thank you for calling. Thank you, James. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, we talk to the domestic goddess herself, Nigella Lawson. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) 
There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for a visit with Nigella Lawson. I met Nigella last summer over breakfast at London's La Fromagerie in Moxon Street. At first glance, I forgot the best-selling cookbooks, the TV shows, and the tabloid fame, and I was struck instead by her poise and also her keen intelligence. She is opinionated, forthright, funny, and has a well-honed turn of phrase. She also doesn't mince words or suffer fools gladly. 
With those cautions in mind, and with some trepidation, I started by asking her about regrets. Uh, Here's one of my favorite quotes. You have many great one-liners. You said, you never regret a baby or a swim. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add to that list? Uh, Well, I feel one always regrets food not eaten. I mean, I have to say that, I don't know if, I'm sure you've read Heartburn by Nora Ephron, Mm -hmm. and they're all sitting around talking about their regrets in life, and everyone's talking rather profoundly about the things they wish they'd done, uh, any bad behavior that they regret. And um, one of them says, oh, I wish I'd eaten more of the onion rings at Antoine's. And I know that so well. And sometimes, I mean, it's incredibly bad for me, but sometimes if I go out and I really feel I'm completely full up and I can't finish it, and I think I have to finish it because otherwise I'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking... I could have had that last bit of pasta. Yeah, guilt and regrets are best enjoyed with lots of wine and food. <laughs> Do you know the whole guilt thing? I, I I never quite get, in the sense that you know I, one of the things I'm asked most often when I'm interviewed is you know what are your guilty pleasures? And I always I get rather prissy, and I always say <laughs> to everyone, look, if you feel guilty about pleasure, you don't deserve to have pleasure. <laughs> I've said exactly the same thing. Uh, We had breakfast a couple months ago, and uh, I've told the story. I reached over to get a piece of fruit, an apricot, knowing that it wasn't very good because my wife had already put back some of it. And and I ate it, and you looked at me quizzically and asked, why did you eat that fruit? You knew it wasn't very good. And I said, because I enjoy disappointment. And, and you and you said, yeah, if you live long enough, you always get disappointed. So, Well, yeah, and also yeah. if you enjoy disappointment, you're going to find life very enjoyable. <laughs> but, I mean, no, I used to say to my children, it's not, not exactly upbeat parenting. I used to say disappointment is an occupational hazard of being alive. That happens frequently, unfortunately. It sure does. I mean, you're probably the only food writer I know, if that's the right description. You talk about immunity from loss and disappointment. I I like the fact that food for you is intimately connected to life, which, of course, is intimately connected to a bright and dark side. There are two sides to it. So that's it's refreshing. And certainly in America, we don't get very much of that. I was once on an American chat show and the interviewer said to me, you've had a lot of loss in your life and um, some tragedy, and what have you learned from that? And I said that the universe is random and cruel, and I have never seen such absolute terror in anyone's eyes. So I felt, so I sort of thought, I can't do that to him, poor man. So then I had to say, (laughs) and to value every moment, because life is precious. I think people just ask questions like, what's your most recent comfort food? And I always say, well, isn't all food comforting? I don't understand that. But that's, That is exactly yeah. what I believe. Yeah. I'm so pleased to hear you say it too. It's also, don't you find as well, is that there's such an odd idea that comfort food has to be bland and stodgy. Yeah. I, and I never quite understand that. Well, it has to be the food of your childhood, oddly enough, which much of the food... Not of my, all of us want to go back to. No. Um, <laughs> you're a reporter, worked at the Sunday Times, became a freelance writer, and you said something interesting. You said you prefer to be paid to think, not to worry. Uh, yes. What does that mean? Because I was the deputy literary editor of the Sunday Times. I was quite young. I was 26 when I got the job, and 
I enjoyed it, but it was a job where you worried and and uh, in many ways, although of course you worry when you write, when I became a columnist, an op-ed columnist, at least then I was having to think. But but I think that anyway, it's it's good to know what what's right for you and what isn't. And in the same way, one of the reasons, it wasn't just that I felt that I was being paid to worry and not to think, but I realised I was on the wrong career path because I knew that, much as I enjoyed my job and I loved it, but I knew that the next step was being you know, editor and then department head and so on and so forth. And I knew that the one thing that didn't interest me was having power over other people. And the executive ladder uh, seemed to me to be most undesirable. Let's talk about trifle. What I mean, I I love the English and and the English traditions because they're also American traditions. What's mm-hmm. the deal with trifle? Why is it so beloved? Is it just because it's yet another form of pudding or dessert, or is is the tradition or is well, the texture? What is it's it? A, mm, it's the it's got everything. I mean, I think for most people in Britain, it's associated with Christmas. But I but actually, I will have a trifle all the year round, and everyone. Uh, has a different view of how it should be. Of course, the most important thing about a trifle is that it's pretty boozy. But as far as I can see it, that you need either a pound cake or a trifle sponge or a, what the Italians call, you know, savoyardi or boudoir biscuits, whatever you want to call them. And then on, with that, you can either sandwich with jam or you just put some fruit, but first there has to be the alcohol. And then... If you can make jelly, but I do think it's quite important, and it sounds awful, that if you can make your own, and I have one trifle, which is rhubarb with a muscat mm-hmm. uh, jelly made with, you know, dessert wine. But I do think you've got to have a very, very good custard, very good egg yolks, uh, cream and milk. I've, some people put all cream, but I think half heavy cream, half milk is best a proper vanilla pod with the seeds and then you have to put let it get cool a bit and then before it's cold put it on top of so far you've got your sponge your booze your fruit the custard goes on top and when it sets just in case it's not rich enough you whip some more heavy cream and put it on top and decorate as you Will. So are you same-day trifle? You make it in the morning and let it set up and serve no, it? You're oh, not a, no, no. Or one do you have to let it sit? Self, no one with any self-respect, Chris, is a same-day trifle maker. <laughs> um, is there such a thing as food writing or is everything just writing? I, I stumbled into food writing by mistake, in a way, from a journalist. And I remember when my first book came out, and people said, oh, you know, congratulations on your book. And I, and I used to say, oh, it's just a food book. Because somehow, when I started, food writing was perhaps seen as lesser. And although I do take it seriously, and the balance of a sentence, the taste of a sentence, the sound and feel of a sentence is very important to me, I'm always very wary of sounding... Um, grandiose or pretentious, as if I'm creating great art. I think it's a craft, and I think it's very creative, but it's always difficult, whether in writing or cooking, when it's ascribed the status of art, as if that's the only thing that makes it of value. Uh, Heston Blumenthal, I spoke to him a couple months ago, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know... I bet a- you didn't get a word in edgeways there, either. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> at first, uh, it was going to be a short interview. I had 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. An hour later, uh, we were still talking. He was doing most of it. But I actually loved him, and it was a great conversation. Oh, he's, but He's wonderful. He's wonderful. But he has this menu, as you well know. It's a, a trip to mm-hmm. the seashore, and there's an iPod, and you can listen to the sea while you're eating a things that look like seashore items that are actually edible. Uh, w- what do you think about that, an intellectual uh, narrative approach to food as opposed to just a plate of clams? It's not for me. But having said that, if you're, if you're Heston or Farhan Adria or one of those genuses, it's going to work. The difficulty with that approach is that lesser talents try and pull it off, and then it is just frankly appalling. There are certain geniuses, and they can do it, but the rest of us should not be attempting it. Certainly not (laughs) me. Um, Why are we so quick to abandon cooking in the modern age when it is both so central to our culture, not just for our survival? I mean, I tell you what, I think in some part this is due to the chef culture because I think people believe cooking to be a far more involved and labour-intensive activity than it need be. So actually cooking can be terribly simple. I mean, it isn't very difficult to put a chicken in the oven. I sometimes get, when people say I haven't got time to cook, I feel like you're not writing War and Peace in the evening, you know. (laughs) But once you start chopping or stirring, as long as it's nothing very demanding, it really helps me to decompress. I think it helps a lot of people decompress. But in the same way as exercise, the idea of taking exercise is abhorrent. But actually, you always feel better when you do it, I think. You've reacted to this before, but some people say a good (laughs) diet makes a good person. And that just drives you crazy. Well, I have written about this and been very vocal on the subject, but I feel I feel there's a real link between the the purists and the puritanical, and it all comes down to fear of the flesh. The world is random. The world is chaotic. They feel that if they can control their diet, they can control the universe. They can make sure nothing bad happens to them. You know, immortality is greatly to be desired, but impossible to attain. People think somehow through their diet, they can ward off mortality. So I understand what that particular neurosis is about, thinking a good diet makes a good person. But... You know, Hitler was a vegetarian. Let's let's remember that. <laughs> that that was that was pretty random. Now, come on, was... it was random. But you know, I'm sorry. And and actually, this is not to say I believe that there's anything bad about being vegetarian. And I don't know what you think about this, but I think actually, uh, on a completely, I'm going now. I'm this from going to non sequitur now. But I find it very interesting. I think the rebirth, the rebranding, you could call it of vegan cooking has been fascinating. And now I think some of the most creative cooking comes from vegans, and I respect people who are vegan. I would rather be vegan and had the odd bit of grass-fed beef than eat um, eat a totally carnivorous diet with bad quality meat. So, uh, okay, let's define you a little, which you hate. What a horrible idea. Chris. I know. It's a terrible idea. I'm going to try it anyway. You're not an apologist for food. You're not a cheerleader. You're not a moralist. Are you 
a hedonist when it comes to food? Is food just, it, it just is one of the things one does if one's a sentient human being? Well, what, what is it? I think, I think food is pleasure, but I feel, well, now I'm going to sound like a complete lunatic, but anyway, I think, yes, food is pleasure, but it is, it's really, I always feel it's a story of who we are. And that changes over life. You know, you, you might eat one thing as, you know, when you're young and then you grow and your tastes change. And I think it's also, food is very much how one connects with the world. So having lived a life where I kind of lived it out of my head, I rather like the sort of the manual, um, purely physical aspect of cooking. I think the thing about food which makes it so interesting is it's, kind of has a bit of all disciplines. I think it's social history. For me, it has a huge aesthetic pull. It's physical work, manual. And it's, I think, intellectually interesting and stimulating and also enormously satisfying if you're greedy. Now, I have to say, all this comes from a position of great privilege. And so... In other contexts, everything I've said could sound decadent at best and obscene at worst. But I also, I also think that it's something that people cling on to when they haven't got that privilege. There's a very moving book of recipes that were jotted down by women in a concentration camp. And in the same way as it's recently I've been listening, uh, had a radio program with Syrian refugees talking about the food they grew up with and the food they miss. And I think that actually food is such an essential part of who we are, how we define ourselves or how we experience the world, how we experience each other, that it, it can never be either empty or full hedonism or merely fuel. It says something so much deeper. That was Nigella Lawson, food writer and also food TV host. Many consider Nigella a domestic goddess, an earthier Martha Stewart, if you like. Jamie Oliver is a good bloke. Rachel Ray is the girl next door. And the barefoot Contessa is, of course, the guru of the Hamptons lifestyle. I've never met Jamie, but I can say from experience that Nigella is thoughtful and witty. Rachel is one of the most genuine people you'll ever meet. And Ina Garden is a modest, almost shy person who owns one of the keenest business minds around. The famous among us may be different up close, but at least in the world of food, they live life fully, they take their chances, and they earn their pleasures. And that's why they are, in fact, a breed apart. They realize that pleasure is fleeting, life disappoints, and every bite counts. Yes, Nigella, there are no guilty pleasures. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to chat with my friend Lydia Bastianich host of public television's Lydia's Kitchen, about what she makes for a quick, last-minute supper. Lydia, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, so it's, let's say it's Tuesday night. You have 45 minutes to get something on the table. Uh, how would you think about doing that? I think the, if you have half an hour to prepare dinner or so, you go to the cupboard and you go to the refrigerator. In the cupboard, of course, I would pull out uh, pasta and some kind of basic intense 
ingredients. I'm always talking uh, kind of on Italian mode. Uh, some anchovies, some olives, some capers, uh, of course, some uh, good olive oil. And then in the refrigerator, whatever you have, you know, uh, vegetables. I love vegetables. So any little piece of vegetable, even kind of leftover vegetables. Or if you have some shrimps uh, and, you know, something, a little sauce that you made the day before. So whatever you have left, even in the freezer, you put it in the pan. Put the water boiling, put the pasta to cook, some oil, some crushed garlic, and you go on with a little bit of anchovy, and then the vegetables, uh, or, or and the fish, or even shredded chicken, a little chicken breast you have there, you just shred it and you throw it in there, season it, take a little bit of the pasta water where the pasta is cooking, add it to the pan, that will make you the pan sauces, and hmm. when the pasta is done, you fish it out and throw it in the sauce, wet the pan and finish cooking it there and then you bind the whole thing with another drizzle of olive oil and grated grana padano and voila you have dinner for four i would say less than half an hour Oof, that sounds good i mean one question so you slightly undercook the pasta and put that in the right. skillet with the sauce to finish right yeah i always do that you know as italians we like it al dente but i undercook it a little more. So I fish it out, I put it in the sauce, and then I take a little bit of the pasta water, add to that pan so that the pasta can cook a little more. But while it's cooking in the pan with the sauce, it's absorbing the mm. sauce. And it's making the sauce nice and velvety. So, you know, when the pasta is done to, to your likeness, add the cheese, toss it well, and voila. Good glass of wine. Don't forget that. And next Tuesday, somebody will be standing outside your door knocking <laughs> to, to have supper. <laughs> but, sounds... but you know, but you know, for those unexpected uh, visits, the cupboard and whatever you have left in the refrigerator will do. Lydia, thank you so much. A great recipe for Tuesday night. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Bye bye. Take care. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. 
Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Oh, this is Rosie Dunsford. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Rosie. How can we help you? Well, I was looking through your first edition of Milk Street Magazine and your foolproof pie crust. Mm -hmm. And my question is, can I make that pie crust for traditional filled pies? Like sure. pumpkin, mince, etc. Sure. For those who don't know the recipe, we figured out that we could take the water from the recipe and bind it up in a gel with cornstarch, throw in the microwave for about 30 seconds, and then in the freezer for 10 minutes to cool it. And since the water, therefore, doesn't really react as much with the flour, it doesn't get tough. But I don't know. if you, Have you made the recipe yet, by the way? I have made it. Yeah. The thing I love about it is the texture. It's almost like Play-Doh when you roll it out. It's it very, is. Yeah, it's very, very easy to work like with. Very much like Play-Doh, yeah. So I, I've made a two-crust pie with it a couple times. I made lots of tarts with it. I've made pre-baked uh-huh. crusts for pumpkin, and it's just so easy to work with. So, yeah, there's no problem. You can – traditional That's pie's great. great. I have to make 30 pies, so. Woo! <laughs> well. I know. I do have to say, though, the best pie crust I've ever had in my life was made – and. Traditionally in America, it was leaf lard from around the kidneys yeah. and a pig. If you ever get really good rendered leaf lard, the real deal, that's yeah. terrific. But I would say this is uh, now my go-to because it's so easy to work right. with. This is for – you're making 30 pies for a restaurant? For my restaurant, yes. I just make the crust. The baker does the filling. And these are classic it's, Thanksgiving it's pies? or Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Try that. 30 pies is a lot of pies, but they'll be easy to roll I out. I will. So. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for calling. Good luck with uh, Thanksgiving. Loved it. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
I'm Ivy, and I live in San Francisco. And my question for you, what about convection ovens? There is no information on how to cook with a convection oven. And I've sort of experimented with it. It's nice for baking. I thought maybe with the circulating air, it would make a crisper skin on a roasted chicken. But it doesn't seem to be the truth. And I just have no idea how to use it effectively. You know, convection oven has one or two, like, $6 motors in the back of it, right? These little tiny fans. And they push the air around. So yeah. bread, doing cookies is great because it's more even cooking. A chicken's good. But the things you should never use in a convection are cakes, you know, souffles, anything that's sweet that rises, the top will dry out and set before it's fully risen. But I'm interested why your chicken didn't work because it should have. So did you pat the chicken really, really, really dry? Yeah. No, good. In fact, sometimes I will salt it and then leave it in the refrigerator overnight. And then pat it dry? And then pat it really dry. So it is seasoned and dried out. Do you oil it before you put it in the oven? Yes. And what temperature do you do it at? I've gone from 450 and then turning it down after 20 minutes or so. I tried 425, 400. When I do it about 400... The fond on the bottom of the pan doesn't get scorched, and it makes better sauces. You still don't get a brown enough chicken. Yes, I just don't get it crispy enough. What size chicken are you working with? Well, we've got big old chickens. They're usually about five pounds. Wow. And how long are you roasting it for? About an hour and a half. Something's strange. Yeah, something's strange. I, yeah. I'm going to blame your oven. That's That makes life easier. Well, I was going to say... I did a redo on my kitchen, and I got the dumbest oven I've ever had in my life. And, you know, the ovens are always at 500 degrees in restaurant kitchens. We would cook three and a half pounders at 45 minutes right. at 500 degrees, and they'd come out gorgeous. So at home, I right. translated that to 450 in a regular oven. So when you said 400, I was thinking maybe in a convection, it should be 425. I would do 450 on convection, a five-pounder for what? An hour? Yeah. Or 45 and then turn it down? The problem is America's skin crazy. Everyone wants the perfect skin. Yeah. If you don't care about the skin, poaching it actually is foolproof. So I'd argue to always cook it with skin on and then take the skin off later. Skin has a lot of fat in it, and fat is a conductor of flavor. So yeah. I would opt for keeping it on. I don't think we solved your problem, though. Well, we came up with something. <laughs> we did. We yeah. did. All yeah. right. All right. Anyway, Amen. give that a shot. Amen. Okay, Ivy. Good luck. Thank you. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring at one eight five five four bowtie. That's one eight five five four bowtie. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Dan. I'm calling from Fairfax, Virginia. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. So the grocery store that uh, my wife and I frequent sells only organic cane sugar, basically, not the standard granulated white sugar that you get in, in most grocery stores. And I hadn't thought much about this, but in your recipe for caramel oranges, uh-huh. you had noted that... Uh, you should not use this quote-unquote natural sugar since it would make the color of the caramel hard to judge. So that got me thinking. I was wondering if I was messing myself up by using this sugar in other recipes, uh, not just the ones that can require Yeah, that's a good question. That comment actually comes from me because I was making that caramel, and I 
buy natural cane sugar at the same place you probably do. Uh, I found it was a little more difficult with the caramel because like it was harder to see the color. It seemed to bubble up more. It was cloudier. It was a little more difficult to work with. However, I use that sugar for everything else for baking, and I've never had a problem. So I think it's fine. I just think when color matters and you need a really refined product, caramel would be, you know, a sugar syrup would be, I think, the only time you'd really have to worry about it. I mean, Sarah? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's slightly, it's sort of golden. It's not white, correct? it's not. It's still got a little bit of the residual molasses from the whole, you know, sugar process. And molasses also has more moisture. So it's, it's just sort of slightly a different animal. So, yeah, I could see how when making a caramel that would be a problem. I'm going to be honest. I, I haven't played with it all that much, so I've used it for years, and I do with you know beating egg whites or cakes or anything else. I think it's of course if it's dissolved in like a cobbler or something, it's not a problem. Yeah, I think it's when you caramels the or yeah. sugar syrups the only time you really you need want to, to see, have. You need to see yeah. and you need it to behave the same way. And I think it does bubble up differently. Yeah. I don't think it behaves quite the yeah. same. So I think that's the exception to the rules. Right. Sugar syrups. So. Right. Okay. Great. Well, so it sounds like when color matters, it, yeah. uh, we should go for the natural stuff. I think we have to call that a Sorry, semi go for, go for the regular granulated sugar. Yes. Yeah, and so I, I use the same thing you do for almost everything. That's good to know. Empirical yeah. evidence. We Excellent. like that. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Well, I appreciate your, uh, your information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Stephanie Danler, she's the author of the bestseller Sweet Bitter, decided to write a fictional book about the front of the house, the hosts and waitstaff, not the more heralded back of the house, the chefs, cooks, and dishwashers. Based on her experiences in coffee shops and at a high-end New York eatery such as Union Square Cafe, this work of fiction is also autobiographical. So uh, you moved to New York City in your early 20s, and you worked at the Union Square Cafe, which I would assume would be a fairly plum job How did you get that job? Yeah, um, it was my first job out of college. I was 22, but I had been working in restaurants since I was 15 years old. So I started as a hostess, and I worked at a coffee shop all through college, but I had never had another job. My The narrator of the book, Tess, she's actually brand new, but I wasn't. I I knew something about wine. I knew something about oysters. But I did. I picked up a Zagat guide and I saw most popular restaurants in New York City. And I thought, okay, I'll just apply to all of these and see what happens. Okay, let's talk about the book, Sweet Bitter. So you said the book is about the power of what remains after disillusionment. I'm not sure what that means, but it certainly caught my attention. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I actually didn't write that. Um, Knopf did, but I stand by it 100%. Um, I think that this story is really a young woman's sentimental education and loss of innocence. And so after she's been put through the trials and after she's learned a new language and a new skill, and after she's had her heart broken in every way, not just romantically, what remains. And I I don't want to say too much about the end of the novel, but if you look at this book as a story about an education, what remains is her knowledge. She's grown more powerful because she has this knowledge about food and wine that no one can take away from her. You you talk about eating is a discipline, it's language obsessed. Um, do, Do you think the more you know about food, cooking, and eating, the more you're able to enjoy it or not? 
I do. That's a great question. And I would one I wonder what you think about this, but I think that investigating something in a disciplined manner and learning a new way of talking about it forces you to pay attention and slow down in a way that most people don't. There's a lot of kind of thoughtless automatic consumption of food. And what Tess is learning in this novel is that if you pay attention to what you're tasting, it will echo across all your senses. It will change the way that you see the light outside or the way that you feel someone's touch. A quote here, the drama and the sexual tension, the sadness and the joy and the friendship, I think that those currents add a lot of energy to restaurants. I've never thought of a restaurant as the drama of sexual tension, sadness, joy, and friendship. You're talking about someone who actually works there, I assume. Yeah, I am. And I think that another goal I had with the novel was to give a voice and a life to the invisible hands that serve everyone dinner every night. And to show that behind the scenes, people were leading very full, scary, exciting, and humorous lives. And I do think it all adds to your experience as a guest. There's nothing worse than going to a restaurant where the servers are bored or not engaged with each other. When you go into a great restaurant, you have the feeling that you are being hosted by a family almost. This is an odd question, but you you talk about, quote, I do have a black hole. I've been on guard against it minute by minute since childhood. I've touched all its edges. Having that view of life where there's a dark side and a light side, does that is that important to enjoy food too? I mean, does does food need to have a serious dark side to it? Otherwise, you can't really appreciate it? I think the food industry naturally has a dark side to it uh, because it is a world of excesses, almost like a hedonistic world, right? We look at, um, you know, gluttony is a sin, and there's something so decadent about spending your life in the pursuit of sensual pleasure, of which food and wine are major players. So I think that that tipping point between what's good for me and what's bad for me is one of the most interesting parts of that lifestyle. So with all your years in restaurants, you obviously have a thousand stories of what happened. Could you give us just one or two, either, you know, the best of times, worst of times, just things that happened that the average diner would never see, of course, but something you you saw or experienced? I have a very good one. So I have weathered many health inspections and there is nothing more terrifying than when the health inspector walks in and your restaurant is full and you're doing a million things wrong because that's just how life works. It's messy. And when I was managing, it was my job to lead the inspector around. And so this was many years after Union Square Cafe. And I remember things were not going in my favor. And I was sweating. And they're so hard to read, these health inspectors. You can never tell if they're 
about to shut the restaurant down, they're angry or whether they found something, they just like nod and they make little notes. It's so terrifying. And then I was leading him and there's a low pipe in this restaurant that everyone at the restaurant knows to duck because the low pipe is there. And he walks straight into it. And I was like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, are you okay? He looks at me, bleeding, blood running down his face. He had to get three stitches. That is a true story that I have never told anyone publicly. <laughs> and, and, and what happened to the restaurant? Did he shut it down? We passed, oh. we got an A. Really? But he, uh, but that inspection was canceled <laughs> because he split his forehead open. <laughs> G- give me one thing about running a restaurant that nobody knows unless you're in the restaurant business. I think that I know how many moving parts and how many hours it has taken to get you your leg of lamb at that minute. I know that someone was mopping the floor at 7 a.m. and that the chef was at the green market shortly thereafter and that people have been prepping all day and that we employ a huge staff so that this leg of lamb can magically appear before you. But it's really interesting to see the way people hurry through a meal that this is our life. We've spent all, all day working up to this moment. Every week it's the same thing, just so that you can have that first bite and be impressed. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about solving a common problem of Thanksgiving, which is how to turn out a perfectly baked pie. So we suggest here at Milk Street that you use a sheet pan underneath the pie plate. The reason you do that, of course, is if the filling starts to bubble up outside of the pie, it doesn't go to the bottom of the oven where it starts to smoke. But there are actually two other reasons for this. One is that it reduces the flow of hot air up around the sides of your pie plate. This also, by the way, works with a tart pan or a cake pan, which means you don't overcook the sides before the center gets cooked. The second thing that happens is you're less likely to superheat the top of the oven because the flow of air from the bottom of the top is also reduced. This means you don't overcook the top of what you're baking before the insides are properly cooked. Now, one note of caution. If you're following a recipe that does not call for a sheet pan, you may have to increase baking time just a bit because you're reducing the flow of hot air around the oven. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's where you can also download each week's recipe. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.